and open your Bibles up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we are going to read verses 16 and 17 together. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, as we come into part four of Why Bother with the Bible, and we just briefly have a little more instruction given to us, a little more education. Um, Lord, we just know that uh, head knowledge just puffs up, but love edifies. Uh, We know that the difference, uh, that many people will miss the kingdom of heaven by those 18 inches, the distance between their brain and their heart, Lord. And we just pray that uh, you would equip us, you would give us uh, just right knowledge and understanding uh, that we could know where our faith comes from. But then, Lord, also that we would have the Holy Spirit change our hearts so that we would believe in the faith of the Scripture. We would believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be made wise for salvation and that people would get saved through today's message. And then, Lord, as we look at these great profitable things that Scripture does at the end of verse 17, Lord, would you just... um, Begin that work in so many of us and continue the work you've begun in so many of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, this is part four uh, in a four-part series, Why Bother with the Bible? Uh, The first uh, study was on inspiration, where the Bible came from, that it was God-breathed. Uh, The next week, we studied that uh, it is inerrant. Uh, Because it's God-breathed and God is a God of truth, then everything that was written out by God is truth and is without error. Uh, The third week, which was last week, we looked at uh, the method of interpreting the Bible. So uh, inspiration, inerrancy, interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible as we read it and study it? How do we know that we are really getting what ought to be get got out of it. You guys are following with me on that, right? And then, uh, and then finally, uh, another I-N word, just so you'll remember it, inclusion. Inclusion. Inclusion into the Bible. Why, why is what is in the Bible there? How did this book get to be in there versus this book? You know, what? Why is there not a sweet little comic book section in the back, you know, some Calvin and Hobbes, you know, or why is it family circus? They're Christians, you know, or BC, right? That should be like a comic strip at the beginning of the book. He's a Christian, you know. Uh, Who gets to pick what's in this leatherback book? And so we're looking at inclusion and the purpose of that. And so again, In all of this, we've been looking at verse 16, where we deal with Scripture's origin, looking at verse 16a, and then we will deal with its purpose, what it's intended for. As has been said many times, we'll go from our creed to our conduct. And so beginning in your notes, uh, we're going to study what is known as the canon of Scripture, Okay, the canon of Scripture. Those of you who have been on those good old World War II battlefields, you've probably got some good pictures with cannons. Okay, this will help you remember. Ah, the canon, yes. Man, I remember that goofy guy. All right. There are 66 books in this library. 27 of those books written after Jesus came. It's what we call the canon. The canon, okay? I want to give you some definitions for canon, all right? First of all, the literal meaning in your notes. From canon with a K in the Greek or kenet in the Hebrew, it has the meaning of rod or reed or by conclusion a measuring rod, like a yardstick 
or a tape measure for those of you that are in the construction industry. You know, uh, it's helpful as we go about the construction business to have that standard. So when we're measuring, you know, 16 inches on center that everyone's using the Dustin's like, what are you talking about, dude? You've never done it right. He's worked with me. Yeah, it's like, oh, is it 14 or 6? I don't know. Who knows, right? Uh, It's 16 on center, right? Um, And that everyone's using the same standard as they measure it out, all right? So that's the literal meaning. It's that standard or a measuring rod. We want everybody to be going through life with that same standard. The figurative meaning is that which is measured or that which conforms to a standard. And then the theological meaning. The theological meaning is the recognition that 66 books of the Old and New Testament are the authoritative standard for our faith and practice. So we have a rule, we have a yardstick, we have a measuring stick. It's the Bible, okay? And so we can come together thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people, and we can all have the same direction in our faith because we're all using the common inch. You know, we're all using the same standard, the book, the Bible. Now, there are some different views on canonicity or different views on the canon. First of all, the Roman Catholic view. Okay, the Roman Catholic view has been called the stretched view. Why is it called the stretched view or or the broad view? Because Roman Catholic theology embraces three equally legitimate sources of authority. First of all would be the scriptures themselves. Second would be what's called the magisterium. The magisterium. Now the magisterium is a body of tradition accumulated throughout the centuries that interpret scriptures and state the church's official doctrine. So they've got the scriptures, they've got the magisterium, and also equally authoritative is the Pope speaking ex cathedra, which means from the chair or from the cathedral. On these rare occasions, the Pope is speaking with the authority of God. Everything said by the Pope in this case is the word of God. Now, there have only been two occurrences of this in 1854 with the Immaculate Conception by Pius IX. And 1950, the bodily assumption of Mary by Pius XII. Now, it's interesting, years ago, we were doing a doctrine study in the church here, and uh, Stuart White, who was a worship leader, office guy, web guy, tech guy, many of you know Stuart, um, him and I went around town, and we were doing video interviews with just random strangers in Ray's parking lot, uh, up on the viewpoint. We went up on the viewpoint the the week we were teaching on the canon, and uh, there was a guy running up the face of the viewpoint like no one else was like who could we interview there's nobody up here ah this would have been a great place too bad and up the view up the front of the viewpoint that steep hill comes the guy running like oh this guy's perfect you know and it's blaine nolan blaine nolan from nolan construction you know uh and he comes up and they're like hey can we interview you he's like i can't breathe hold on you know and we interviewed him many questions about you know uh the bible and you know, what's your understanding of the Bible? Where, what's your background? And, you know, qu- various questions. Now, as we were interviewing, a man rolled up on a scooter and was parked a little ways away. And he overheard our questioning and our conversation. And turns out Blaine's a Christian and actually was just baptized a couple weeks ago. Really cool. Um, but the man on the scooter uh, began yelling at Stuart and I. Really, really angry yelling at us. And he was telling us that we were going to hell because we have not submitted ourselves to the magisterium or to the Pope speaking ex cathedra. And so to some, and some could explain this better than me, I'm sure, uh, this is is a big point of difference between a Catholic view and a Protestant evangelical would be our levels of authority. And so as evangelicals, uh, we would state uh, the, uh, well, that'll be later on on point D. Point eight, uh, 
is just uh, the broad view uh, with the Roman Catholic view of the scriptures, the magisterium, and the pope. And then uh, we have a second view, which would be the liberal Protestant view, or the naturalistic view, which states that the Bible is a human book, so the canon is simply a human invention designating certain books to be divine. And we'll discuss that in a minute, but essentially it's, it's all human, and humans determine this stuff, okay? Um, then we move on to the neo-Orthodox view, or the encounter view, okay? The neo-Orthodox view is like the liberal view. It believes the process of canonicity was entirely human, the Bible thus has no inherent authority. However, the B Bible becomes the word of God and thus authoritative or canonical whenever the reader spiritually encounters Christ in the writing. All right. And then fourth and finally, uh, the evangelical view, which is also called the recognition view. This states that the biblical writings were authoritative as soon as they were written because they are inspired from God. And then we merely recognize in a historical process these to already be canonical. All right. So we've got a couple of correct and incorrect views here. And... Uh, <clears throat> Let's just kind of go side by side with them. Um, one would say the church is the determiner of the canon, when in reality the church is just the discoverer of the canon. One would say that the church is the mother of the canon. We make the Bible, essentially. Rather, we would, we would say the church is the child of the canon. One would say the church is the authority of the canon, when really we are the minister of the canon. An incorrect view would be that the church is the regulator of the canon, when evangelicals would recognize the church as the recognizer of the canon. The church is the judge of the canon, would be an incorrect view. We would state that the church is the witness of the canon. And finally, the church is the master of the canon, when really we are the servant of the canon. Josh McDowell says, It is important to note that the church did not create the canon. It did not determine which books would be called scripture, the inspired word of God. Instead, the church recognized or discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. Stated another way, a book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. So it's important to note that the writings of scripture were canon. They were the standard the moment they were written. Scripture was scripture when the pen touched the parchment. Okay, Now, some of that might seem like a little bit circular to you, and you've got to have the previous three studies down to maybe get all of that. So we've got it all online, and I'm sharing all my notes with all y'all. So you got to go back, okay? Um, Let's talk about the formation of the Old Testament canon. By the way, uh, this is all trimmed way down from like uh, probably 30 notes, 30 pages of notes. I called Aaron this morning. I talked to Lindsay. I was like, ah, how much should I do on the canon? I just really want to get back into First or Second Timothy. And so uh, Aaron was like, let's just trim it down, man. Let's just trim it down. Something like that. <laughs> Paraphrasing, you know. He's like, how about you chill out, dude? <laughs> I'm getting gray hair with all of these Bible college notes. I'm kidding. Um, all right, so uh, this is way trimmed down, all right? But uh, something that's helpful for you, though, to, to understand where our Bible came from. So the formation of the Old Testament canon. The OT, 
became canonical the moment it was written. It was recognized as complete no later than 400 BC. Our present Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament, contains a threefold division of the Old Testament books. You've got the law, the prophets, and the writings. Then, there, then it came to an end. There was a closing of the Old Testament canon. So the period of Old Testament revelation has ceased. There are no more Old Testament prophets out there. There's some old people, all right? Some old people that say some really good things. Welcome, Blaine. Good to have you back, brother. Miss you, man. He was our older elder for so long, and I didn't know he was going to be here today, so it's just, and Linda, you're so sweet. I'm much younger, Linda, than Blaine, but uh, just kidding. Love you, brother. Good to have you visiting us today. There's some old people out there, but it's, it's even maybe some old people who call themselves prophets, and those people would think, I'm on the same level as a prophet. I'm a prophet. And yet, Old Testament has been recognized in church history to be complete, all right? It's closed. The prophets were the means of Old Testament revelation, Deuteronomy tells us. And then Jesus himself declared that the Old Testament prophetic period was over when John the Baptist came. In Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. So it's interesting for you to note that kind of at the beginning of the New Testament, you're kind of reading Old Testament because John the Baptist is there. And so you kind of have this brief moment where Old Testament goes over into new because John was the last Old Testament prophet. Uh, and uh, at the time, Jesus was ending or ended the Old Testament prophetic era with John the Baptist, although the actual writings of canonical scripture ceased circa 400 BC, okay? The Old Testament ca uh, canon is complete today just as it was in Christ's day, okay? Jesus and the New Testament writers treat it as complete. The New Testament writers use the term scripture without explaining or defining or qualifying or implying because the scriptures were a known established entity by that time. It's interesting that the New Testament quotes from every section of the Old Testament, and it profusely calls itself Scripture. It doesn't quote from every book. While this alone does not establish the inspiration of the books from which quotes are taken, the pattern is useful for showing the parameters of the Old Testament as corresponding to our present Hebrew canon, all right? Finally, the Jews treated it as complete. Now, this is important. Romans 3, 1 and 2 says, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. This is great because Jews are seen as the custodians of Scripture. It's actually important what they say about the Hebrew scriptures. It's a role they took very seriously. Therefore, their opinions of the parameters of the canon should be disregarded only with overwhelming contrary evidence. Very briefly, I want to speak with you about the Apocrypha, also known as the Hidden Books. Some of you may know that the Catholic or the Greek Orthodox have books that we don't have in their Bible. Uh, there's a lot to say about that. Pages and pages of notes, but not much time. Uh, there is no evidence that other books were ever regarded as being canonical or regarded as the list, uh, as any, in any other list than the 66 books of the Bible. We have the Westminster Confession, a beautiful confession that many theologians put together in the 1600s for British Parliament, for their statement of faith. They wrote this out, uh, speaking for Orthodox Christian doctrine, and as they brought it to Parliament, Parliament read it and said, you know what, we want even more scriptural backing in this. And so they went back and they just provided scriptures, just blown out of the water, 
brought it back, and, and Westminster said, man, these are Orthodox Christian beliefs, and you've backed it up with the Bible. And so it's called the Westminster uh, Confession. And in its section, Scripture 1, lo and behold, it starts by saying the importance of Scripture. It's our authority. It's our foundation. And here's what is said regarding uh, the Apocrypha. First of all, the books commonly called the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are of no part of the canon of Scripture and therefore for are of no authority in the church of God, nor are to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Now, that's not to say they're not nice writings. And that's not to say they're not helpful writings, okay? Um, however, they are no more helpful than Shakespeare or Josephus, a great guy that I quote all the time, a Roman historian, helpful guy, but not inerrant, okay? Or even Calvin's commentary or whoever else, helpful, but have no more sanction to them than that, okay? Uh, we're just going to move right along then and say, well, then what is the test for canonicity? You guys are going to be so great walking out of this room today, like, canon, canonicity, canonical, Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you'll never say these words. But <clears throat> what are the tests for the canon? First of all, authority. Authority. Does it claim to be God's word, inspired, or divinely given? Okay, so everything that's in your Bible was recognized to be canonical because it itself says that it is. So we're just recognizing like, it says that it is first of all secondly i don't even know if i can say this apostolicity all right was it written by or under the supervision of an apostle or if we're talking old testament a prophet okay and with that was the writer confirmed by acts of god frequently miracles separated the true prophets from the false ones Okay. Uh, thirdly, accuracy. Is it consistent with the rest of Scripture? Spirituality. Is it active and powerful, leading the reader to conviction, edification, and then finally, evangelism? Those are important things. These are the whys of scripture, what it does and why. It convicts us of our sin and the righteousness of God and the judgment to come. It edifies us. It builds us up. And then it takes us out to the world to evangelize and herald the good news of the gospel. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And finally, a test for canonicity is acceptance. Is its acceptance general, widespread, and sustained by many godly churches and individuals? Like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, for this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So we talked about the closing of the Old Testament canon, the closing of the New Testament canon. Uh, New Testament revelation has ceased as well. The beginning of the New Testament period of revelation began when John the Baptist started proclaiming the kingdom, Jesus, so John the Baptist is kind of like this middle boy, you know, he's like prophet, Old Testament period, going into New Testament, all right? Um, and uh, Jesus anticipates the completion of the new period of revelation during his upper room discourse when he speaks about uh, the Holy Spirit 
teaching all things and bringing to remembrance all things, guiding in John 16 the disciples into all truth. And then the revelation ended with the last apostle. New Testament revelation ended with the death of John in about 100 AD. Okay? So the New Testament canon is complete. All necessary revelation given during this period is in our canon. We have a conclusion from that, that the scripture is sufficient and it is adequate for all of faith and practice. I've got to say, there are books in the Christian bookstore today of men and women saying, when I read the Bible, I'm just not getting much out of it. So I go and meditate and I get more and I'm going to write it down. It'll be a blessing. That's a, that's, that's a gray borderlining black line that needs much caution. All right. Inspiration, inerrancy, interpretation, and inclusion are all important. Okay. We got to test these things. It's through these scriptures that we have the standard for truth. So if doctrine, teachings, practices, traditions, and even our own lifestyles do not conform to the Bible, by the way, not vice versa, we sure want the Bible to conform to our living and ideas and philosophies, shouldn't be so. There needs to be repentance if that's the case. We should not seek to add to the scripture, but rather understand the scripture and obey what's been given to us by God. As we're talking about the New Testament canon being complete, look at what Revelation 22 says. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. How interesting that, that John writing, as the last apostle, writing the last book of the Bible uh, in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, says, don't add to it. Don't mess with it. Back off. All right? Um, and, and so God would add to him the plagues that are written in the book if you would add to the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So, boy, I'm telling you, lots more to say about canon and inclusion. It's a vast subject. Got to restrain myself. Let's get to the text. Let's look at 2 Timothy. That should be the end of your notes there. Where we look at what we go from, what it is, to what it is for. We've been looking at what it is quite a bit the last four weeks. What is it for? We looked last week at one of the first things it's for is found in verse 15, that scripture is able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. We looked at that in depth last week, that as we read the Bible, we're shown how to be saved, how to be forgiven of our sins, and how to be reconciled to our creator. And we're going to move on in verse 16 and 17 to see what, what is it for? As I quoted from Stott last week, Paul goes on now to show that the prophet of Scripture relates to both creed and conduct. The false teachers divorce them, but we must marry them. So why should we bother with the Bible? Number one, it makes you wise for salvation. I tell you, everyone in this room needs to be saved. If you haven't been saved yet, got to get saved. Got to, all right? Be saved. Be reconciled to God. Be saved from sin's curse. Be saved from sin's power. Be saved from sin's penalty. Why should we come to the Bible? Because it will make you wise for salvation. And secondly, it teaches the man or the woman how to live. How to live. Paul essentially, in the final pulse of his life, his final words, he tells Timothy, Teach the Bible, and two things will happen. First of all, people will get saved, praise God. Oh, I've been wanting to post this all week, by the way. It was my birthday. It was Wednesday. It was youth group Wednesday. 
Oh, man, the whole afternoon is spent with the youth middle schoolers from about three to five. Great time with the middle schoolers. And then high schoolers from about six to eight thirty. About 12 high school kids raise their hands to repent of their sins and to know Jesus as their savior. Is that not awesome? That awesome? I'm looking around the room. We've got high school kids all throughout the room today that have been coming to Wednesday night Bible study. I just got a text, actually. Listen to this, you guys. I just got a text during worship. I told you guys about a kid that's been coming, uh, that came one week, first time he's ever been to church. He's a senior in high school, and I gave him his first Bible. Someone left their Bible here. It's been here for quite a while. Brand new, nice leather Bible. Gave it to him. Said, go read John. Sorry, it might have been yours. <laughs> Take some money out of the building fund to buy you a new Bible. But, hey, Rory, this is during worship today. Hey, Rory, just wanted to say I finished John and have really been inspired. Is that awesome? So I was like, dude, get down here. Church is going. I might, he might be here. I don't know. Praise the Lord. All right. We're preaching the word. We're preaching the word to high schoolers. They can handle it. Something like an hour teaching on Wednesday nights. They're listening. They're excited about the word of God and they're getting saved. Praise God. Isn't that awesome? So the Bible tells, uh, Paul tells Timothy, teach the Bible and two things will happen. First of all, people will get saved. A couple weeks ago, arms were being raised in this room. Not that raising your arms saves you. That's not what does it. But confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That all includes and implies you've been made aware of your sin, you're repenting of your sin, you're coming to Jesus as both Lord and Savior. All of that happens as we're preaching the Bible here. You're made wise concerning those things. Even middle schoolers and high schoolers and kids in the back, even today, people will get saved and then people will know how to live once they've been saved. All right? Right belief always leads to right living. All right? Don't tell me you believe in Jesus, but continue to practice sin. You're lying to yourself. You basic, okay? <laughs> That's what First John tells us. The book of John is chock full. In fact, the whole purpose of, the, of John, John tells us, is so that you may know you have eternal life. How do I know I have eternal life? Well, read First John, all right? He'll tell you, but don't lie to yourself. So if the Bible is truth, and if really the Bible itself says you'll get saved as you read it, and you'll know how to live once you are saved, if this is truth, then I as an individual either need to learn how to be saved today, or I need to learn how to live now that I am saved. Listen to me, and look at me. Figure out what you want. Figure out what you want. There's a lot of lip service. A lot of lip service, even at Calvary Chapel. Stop playing games with God, all right? You know the truth. You've been told it here. You've sat under enough Bible teaching to make you wise for salvation. It's time to live it. Amazing. I've heard that phrase so much in the last couple weeks. It's just, you know, figure out what you want. A pastor friend of mine and, and, you know, Josh over in Burns, we were hanging out. He said, man, this awesome guy that's being raised up as an elder now, he's a, he's a cowboy, total buckaroo, left the valley and moved to Burns so he could become a cowboy. Awesome, like total like cowboy dude. Went to like a wake after a funeral. His wife was going, he said, you know, I'm going to go hang out with these guys at this wake. Just got plastered. In the middle of being plastered, he calls Josh and he says, I am in so much sin right now. And we've, pastors get that call all the time, like in the middle. And that's good. But here's the difference. As he calls in the middle of sin, he is godly sorrowful over his sin. He calls Josh to come get him. They talk all night long. And then Josh says, look, when you've sobered up in the morning, we're going to circle back around here. All right, because you've been telling me you want to live for Jesus. I haven't seen you around. I haven't seen you at men's group. I haven't seen you at church, you know, and, and now you're just practicing sin. And we can go through this game and this rigmarole till Christ comes. But I fear that when he comes, you won't go with him. You got any, and he said this to his friend. Figure out what you want. 
Do you want to live a life of carnality, drunkenness, immorality, playing games, telling me, oh yeah, I'm all in, man. I'm here at the, yeah. You know, Calvary's my church. Calvary's my home church. It's like, the Lord knows, all right? Figure out what you want. And that was such a word for that man because he is now like submitted to the Lord and he's being raised up into church leadership. He's repented and he's following the Lord. And I would say to you guys, boy, this life is way too short, way too short. I just turned 37 this week, okay? Giggling going on because some are saying that's so old and some are saying that is so young. All right, I'm right in the middle just about, okay? But here's what I'm thinking. I'm snuggling with my Laney girl last night, my little Laner girl, nine years old, watching a movie last night. We just snuggle. We love to snuggle. And I'm thinking, when did this happen? Nine. All right. And so after the movie, she gets up, she goes to bed, and, and I'm coming in to tuck her in. She opens the door. Dad, don't come in yet. I'm not ready. And I had a flash of her wedding day. Don't come in, Dad. I'm not ready, not yet. And I'm standing outside her door and I do a little, I'm just waiting and I do a little, little, and I go, I'm going to do that on her wedding day. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking the numbers through and it's tomorrow. A youth group, I'm telling the kids the year I was born, Emma goes, I was, no, I, I said, I graduated in 2000. Emma goes, I was born in 2000. And I'm like, old dude. Okay? Tomorrow. He's coming tomorrow. He's going to be back tomorrow. We will see him. Don't goof off, you guys. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Be saved. And today, if you hear his voice and you are saved, figure out what you want. You are wasting time. The game, it's got to be done. Let's get about the business of the Lord. You've got one life to live, and it will soon pass, and only what you've done for Jesus will last. Figure out what you want. G.I. Packer wrote in his book, Under God's Word, that the Bible is not primarily a book for the speculative thinker, the scientific investigator, or the literary critic but it is rather for the individual who having learned for the world around him and from his own heart, something of God and of his own need. And now he seeks to know God and find salvation. For the Bible, the Bible will reveal the thoughts and intents of your heart. And it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for doctrine. Can we really know what's true? Is truth relative? Well, the Bible says that it's the only truth and that it's profitable for knowing the truth, to be taught the truth. It's beneficial for training people and teaching people. Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. That Old Testament that just seems so dry and dull, boy, I'd love to help you get excited about the Old Testament. It was written for your learning. That through it, patience and comfort in it, you could have hope. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says that the Old Testament, all these things happened to the Old Testament folks as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Why read the Old Testament? Why read the scriptures? It, those guys are examples. Praise the Lord, we're not being made the example. Those guys are made the example. As much as you'd like to say, I would never eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, like, thank the Lord it was Adam because you would have failed so much worse. All right. You would have been like, oh, the tree, you know, <laughs> just gone crazy. Uh, I guess all the trees were okay to eat from, but. 
Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I believe it goes on to say, More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them is great reward. You guys see in the profitability of the scripture? See the profitability of even knowing what the scripture is? Who says the Bible is the Bible? We've got great, great history to show that the book as we have it is complete. Look at what Psalm 119.97 says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I've not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And down at verse 130, it says, The entrance of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. See how profitable the Bible is for teaching? We've got these four verbs. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, We've got doctrine, teaching, the teaching of the apostles. The New English Bible says, uh, teaching the truth, refuting errors, reformation of manners, and discipline for right living. I kind of like that. It is to be the Bible that I turn to when I ask, what am I supposed to believe? And it's to the Bible that I turn when I ask, how am I supposed to behave? Now, as much fun as we've had these last four weeks, verse 16 is not a verse here to tell us that the Bible is inspired. Although it does do that. (laughs) Rather, verse 16 is to tell us that no man will be equipped for the work unless they are thoroughly soaked in the word of God. The Bible calls the child of God to be thoroughly soaked in it. The Bible is a means of grace. God uses the Bible to achieve his goals in conforming us into the image of his son Jesus. It is the supreme instrument he uses to make us like his son. The Bible We need to be listening to the Bible. He's given us two eyes and two ears, reading and listening, one mouth. You know, more reading, more listening. The general tenure of a congregation will be marked by the instruction it receives. It's so important That the context of instruction of the word of God is in the sanctuary, the word of God is preached and taught. In the classrooms, the word of God is preached and taught. In the living rooms, Gospel Coalition put out a great article last night about um, research on which children end up following the Lord after they leave the home later on in life. And you know the, the primary things that you see in those kids' lives? You see regular Bible reading as a family, regular prayer time, as a family, regular church active involvement and serving, not just attending, but serving with the family, and a culture of genuine confession and repentance of sin from the parents to the children, all right? Man, we want to see our kids living for Jesus as they grow up. We preach the Bible and we teach the Bible. We read the Bible to our kids. I got a quote here for you from Charles Hodge great preacher, great writer. I've loved using him almost in every book that I've taught. 
Listen to what Charles Hodge has to say in the book The Way of Life. Get ready to be slapped across the face. (laughs) In love. In love. It is most unreasonable to expect to be conformed to the image of God unless the truth concerning God be made to operate often and continuously upon the mind. How can a heart that is filled with the thoughts and cares of the world, and especially one which is often moved to evil by the thoughts or sights of sin, expect that the affections which answer to the holiness, goodness, or greatness of God should gather strength within it? How can the love of Christ in the bosoms of those who hardly ever think of him or his work? This cannot be without a change in the very nature of things. And therefore we cannot make progress in holiness unless we devote much time to the reading, hearing, and meditation of the word of God which is the truth whereby we are sanctified. The more this truth is brought before the mind, the more we commune with it, entering within its import, applying to our own case, appropriating its principles, appreciating its motives, rejoicing in its promises, trembling at its threatenings, Rising by its influences from what is seen and temporal to what is unseen and eternal, the more we can expect to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so as to approve and love what is holy, just, and good. People, listen to this, people distinguished for their piety have always been people of meditation as well as people of prayer. People accustomed to withdraw the mind from the influence of the world with its thousand joys and sorrows and to bring it under the influence of the doctrines, precepts, and promises of the word of God. Here's a bite-sized morsel of it for you because you probably got lost. I've read this ten times. I still missed half of it. But. You are kidding yourself if you think you are going to advance in your relationship with God, in right living, in holiness of character, if you think you are going to be conformed to the image of Christ and you can do it apart from the word of God, Apart from fellowship with the saints, spending time in the word of God, and apart from the means of grace of a local church to with you to faithfully be committed, you're kidding yourself. And I get the texts, and I get the emails, and I go on the midnight calls to the alcoholics who are stone-cold drunk, beating up their families, marriages in shambles, sex addictions, and you never see them anywhere or being a part of the means of grace that God has given. And you beg and you plead, come to the waters, come to the fountains, drink and you will thirst no more. Jesus has given us the way of life. Let's walk in it. And I get the net, I get the head nods or the net hods. I get the amens. I get the thank you for telling me that. And even today, I'm grieved those individuals aren't here. In fact, probably eight weeks since I've seen them last. It's your pastor talking. We're joking. We're kidding ourselves. We're hypocrites. We're missing out. It's inspired by God. 
and it's profitable. This is no guilt trip. This is no condemnation. This is the heart of the Lord saying, I've given you the well to drink from. And you're eating sand. You're the three amigos with the canteen in the desert. You know, if you've seen it. You're dehydrated spiritually. What do you want? Determine what you want. If it's life, come to Jesus and the means of grace that he's given. It's profitable for reproof. You see that in your verse there? Verse 16. Guys, that's what's happening right here, right now. Reproof. The, the, the Greek definition of it is that it's an expression of blame or disapproval. It's a rebuke. It's a reprimand. It's a reproach. A reproach or an admonition. Rebuke. We don't like that word. But is rebuke not profitable in teaching our children the way they should go? In correcting our dogs and how to behave in the house? Dudley, get off the table! A thousand times I've told you, get off the table. He's up on the table, wiener dog, eating my kid's food. Get, get in the kennel! Stop pooping in the be- kid's bedroom. Bah! I mean, rebuke does nothing for dogs, let's be honest. <laughs> At least not wiener dogs. Ah, uh, free to get home. I've got two of them. Anyways. <sighs> we're at Olive Garden yesterday. Don't worry, they were gift cards. We can't afford to normally eat there. 20-minute wait. Little sweet, beautiful Tatum girl in her white floral dress laying on the floor in the entryway, rolling around, throwing a fit while we're waiting. Tatum, get off the floor. Come here. Tatum, come here. Get up. It's dirty. Come on. When daddy gets up, you know, guys, correction and rebuke. We don't like that word. Alistair Begg said, we live in a culture where in the teaching world, everything is so bent towards positive reinforcement and affirmation that the notion of rebuke is regarded immediately as some intrusion into a person's life and is viewed almost immediately negatively. Point in fact, it is vital in the teaching task to point out not only what is true, but also what is not true to refute what is wrong and to rebuke what is wrong so that people may then, in embracing truth, turn away from error. The Bible and the Proverbs has much to say about rebuke. And we spent a little time in that a few minutes ago. Hard words for some of us even in this room. Sober, Sober times, right? Times of sobriety, waking us up. It's necessary. There's this great story in the Old Testament in the Kings. There's this little moment where the king of Judah and the king of Israel come together. Jehoshaphat and and I think it was Ahab. And uh, and Ahab says, "Uh, hey, hey, uh, Syria has some of our land. Would you go with me up to get it? And Jehoshaphat says, man, my army is your army. Let's do this thing. But we should inquire of the prophets first. And so all of these prophets come. And uh, about 400 prophets. And the king asks, should I go up and fight to get my land back? And all of the prophets say, uh-huh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah, you should totally go do that, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and Jehoshaphat says, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we could inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there's still one man, Micaiah, the son of Amiah by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but only evil. And Jehoshaphat says, go get that guy. Not a yes man. And so he comes and he starts tricking him. He starts saying, oh yeah, totally go on up there. Take him out. And the king says, 
are you tricking me right now? He says, oh yeah, I'm tricking you. He says, here's a vision. Satan in front of the throne room of the Lord says, all right, I'm going to deceive every one of these prophets so that it'll lead this king up into, um, I'm sorry, it wasn't Satan. It was the Lord. There's a difference just in case you're wondering. I'm just trying to remember. I'm getting Job confused with this. Okay. So Micaiah has this vision that the Lord says, how can I get wicked King Ahab to be killed in battle? And the word is given, let's put lies into the mouths of his prophets so that he'll go up to the battle to die. But only one man would speak the truth, and it was Micaiah. It's a great story. First Kings 22, you got to read it. Uh, worship team, come on up, brother. The word of God is profitable to not only speak the truth to us when all we want to hear is perhaps a lie, but it's also good for correction. You might mark in the margin of your Bible that the word correction is epanorthosis. Now, underline that word ortho, because it's where we get the term orthodontist or orthopedist, and it speaks of correcting faults. I wasn't always this good looking, right? Third grade, had the biggest buck teeth and an Adam's apple. And big old eyes and a hunchback, right? So I'm just like this freak of nature walking around. And so the grace of God, I get a retainer and I get headgear, you know? And I get to cruise around with this in my mouth for quite a while. Hey, guys, can I play with you at school? You know? Oh, I was one of the cool kids, so it didn't really matter, you know? And then years go by, and I got braces, the clear kind. That was pretty cool. And then after years of painful straightening and correcting, and even pulling out of things that shouldn't have been there, I got a straight bite. I got straight teeth. They're yellow, but they're straight, okay? <laughs> I didn't deal with those problems. The Lord uses painful processes to correct us. It's not always easy. It's so slow. Those two years with braces, ugh. chips dinging you and canker sores and bread getting stuck up in there. When is this going to be over? Right? One day it'll be over. Don't hate the correction from the Lord. <clears throat> it trains us. It disciplines us in righteousness, which is right religious observances and correct actions and final verse here that the man of god may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work god wants to equip you all for the work of the ministry ephesians chapter 4 tells us in the greek here it's actually super equip you super equip you for every good work and so i just praise the lord for his grace you guys man Praise the Lord for his grace that he has shown us as a church through faithful men from the days of the apostles, teaching faithful men, teaching faithful men all throughout the centuries, faithful men coming to Oregon, teaching the word and teaching us to be a church that majors in the scripture, that has this standard and this truth. And that believes that it is able to correct us and teach us and instruct us. Why don't we put our things aside? Will you stand with me today? It is so his grace. I just got a major in that. Man, I just could be such a pompous, arrogant jerk up here, you know, talking about correct views of interpretation and canonicity and blah, 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 blah. Man, knowledge just puffs up. Love edifies. I'm so thankful that the ways of the Lord are to even use the untrained, uneducated guys to be a part of his ministry of proclaiming truth. And so thankful for even the Calvary Chapel movement that has really majored in preaching the Bible verse by verse and 
going through the tough passages, the difficult passages, helping us understand who the Lord is and what he requires from us, what he's done for us. Thank you, Lord. It's just want to be a culture of thanksgiving, and we have a thanksgiving dinner tonight as a church. We're just thankful that you have shown us your Bible, the the scriptures. And I know there's people in this room, it's their first time here, and, and they're just like, I don't get what's going on. And Lord, would you just comfort them for a minute, and it's going to be okay. It's not that hard. It, it's not that difficult. It's for the plain man and plain woman here that we would know God and, and know him through the Bible. He wants you to know him. He's given you revelation of himself through the Bible. He wants to teach you. He wants you to know how to be saved. He wants you to be corrected in wrong thinking and wrong living. As painful as that might be, he wants you to be able to walk that narrow path Thank you, Lord. We've had many weeks of saying sorry to the Lord for very poor views of the scripture and the Bible. We just believe that he is fostering in our church again a love for the scriptures, what they're able to do in us. And even just today, maybe you would just say, Lord, I love your word. That's a very biblical phrase from the Psalms. I love your word. Your word is my delight. Help me to love it more, God. Help me to spend more time in it. I'm intimidated by it, Lord. Help me not to be scared. Help me to labor and make it through the tough passages and the confusing passages. Give me understanding, Lord.